you've um, been over at South Hills for a bit, right? He's our yeah. teaching guy over at South Hills, so he was concerned nobody would know who he is. But from the sound <laughs> of it, once you've met Dave, you know Dave. And if you haven't met him, you've heard about him, or you've heard him, yeah. <laughs> one of the two. But anyhow, Dad, Dad Dave, uh, take it away. Yeah, so here's what we're going to do. Hey, uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, can we do this? Uh, Christian, can we have some fun dad game music? Because we want to play a little fun. There it is. All right, so all the gentlemen, every person, you don't have to be a dad, every male in the room, go ahead and stand up. We're going to play a little fun dad game. This is a little game. Yeah, go ahead and stand up. All right, so here's the game we're going to play. We're going to play this little game called This Is Why I'm Broke, Father's Day edition. Every dad has this saying. It's like, this, this, this is why I'm broke. And so there it is. Oh. Ah, it's a fun game. Here's how we play. Um, I'm going to put two items on the screen. And then you're going to try to decide which one of these costs more money, OK? And then you're going to vote. You're going to vote by push, uh, pointing this way for the one on the right and this way on the one on the left, OK? Does that make sense? So and then you can't change if this is honor system, all right? We're in a church, people. All right, and then we're going to whittle this down until the last two people are here, and then uh, they're going to have a, a, a final question. So that's how this is going to work. We have some lovely prizes right behind you. Yes, thank you, Vanna. Uh, a dated reference. Sorry about that. Here we go. Okay, so you get one do-over. Does that make sense? One do-over. So let's let's just pretend play. Here's the first question. What costs more uh, on these two items? Here's the first two. Is it a dad joke book or a universal socket? Hmm, which one? Go ahead and point, gentlemen. Point to which one you think is more. Universal socket. Pay no attention. Okay, let's see what the actual answer is. Dad joke book's about six bucks and... Oh, ah. You see how it works? Now, how many of you are like, well, that universal socket, I could probably use that. Yeah, that sounds great. All right. So let's start playing for real, gentlemen. Are you ready? Here we go. First one, uh, an air vent golf putt. So you put it over your, your, your air vent, you putt into it, or heavy-duty grill set. Which one do you think costs more? All right, let's, you guys lock in your votes, and here's the answer. Ah, okay, so if, if you got it wrong, you get one do-over, but that's it. Okay, next one, here we go. What costs more, a personalized hammer with your name on it or acupuncture sandals? Which one costs more? They're very comfy. All right, the pressure points in, the, in your feet. All right, here's the actual answer. Uh, yeah, personalized hammer. Please, Hammer, don't hurt them. All right, here we go. Next one. Which costs more, a personalized comic book with your name and face in it, made by an artist, or a gourmet meat box? Mmm, gourmet meat box. That's... All right, let's see what the right answer is. Oh, yeah. Go ahead, take us. Oh, that pinned out quite a few dads. Some of the dads are like, where are you getting your gourmet meat boxes? Mine are more expensive. All right, what costs more? Uh, a half moon meat knife. This is a high-end knife for cutting meat. Or a see-through stud finder. I can't use stud finders because they keep going off anytime they're near me. Dead joke! Oh, look. All right, which one costs more? Here it is. Oh! All right, we have... What? One do-over. One do-over, sir. I think we... One do-over. You get one do-over. Next one. Here it is. What costs more? Personalized bobblehead with your lo 
a concrete gift holder, you have to break with a hammer to get to the gift card. Which costs more? Good. Lock in your votes, gentlemen. Here it is, and the right answer is... Ah, it's a bobblehead. How many have we got left? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, you gotta send this out a little bit more. What costs more? Quality Bose audio sunglasses, sunglasses with Bose speakers actually embedded in them, or a tactical coffee mug made to look like a mortar that is made of military-grade indestructible metal. Which one? These are real gifts. These are real gifts I sent to my children. All right, which one? Okay, let's see which one costs more. Oh. Still in, all right, let's go. Keep. Which costs more? High-speed driving lessons on an actual racetrack with a NASCAR or a drive-a-tank experience where you get to drive a actual tank. By the way, this sounds awesome, both of those. If you could combine them somehow, now we're in a Mission Impossible Fast and the Furious movie. It's gonna be great. All right, what's the right answer? Oh, okay. All right. Remaining dads, can you guys come down here? Remaining dads. We got four, we got four, we got four. All right. All right, here it is. All right, gentlemen, I only have two, two presents. So half of you are gonna go home, winners. Here it is. Which costs more? The most expensive New Balance shoes on the market or a deluxe grill with 10 burners? You gotta vote. You gotta vote. You gotta lock it in, gentlemen. The most, by the way, that's the grill of my dreams. Dad joke. Nobody got it, okay. The grill of my dreams, the grill of my, okay. No, just not a good one. All right. Sometimes dads make mistakes. All right, you guys locked it in? Lock it in, wedding. Oh, half or half, okay. Well, half, this is, this is the game. Here's the game, what's the answer? Oh! Who are our winners? You two? All right, come on up. Get up. Give it up for our two winners. Thank you so much, here's one for you. What's your name? Richard, we got Richard, give it for Richard. And here's a dad bag. What's your name, sir? Andy. Andy. Give it up for Richard. Turn around. Say hi to the people. Yes. New Balance shoes. All right. Turn to your neighbor. We're going to take a minute. Say hi to one another for about a minute. We're going to come back and have some fun together. Thanks, guys.
well, good morning, everybody. Find your seat. Um, welcome. If we, uh, again, it's been a hot minute since I've been at the Saratoga campus. Uh, my name's Dave Tish, and I just introduced myself. I'm at the South Hills campus. I'm the teaching pastor there, but I'm also the host of the Afterward podcast with me, Dave Tish. So if you don't know what that is, just download it because it's, it's available anywhere that podcasts are available. This is my family. My son just graduated from high school, so it's a big deal for us, our family. Very excited. Um, now, we've already had the fun, so let's just get right into the scripture. We've been traipsing through the book of Matthew, so I'm going to lead uh, us through this, this next passage of scripture, and it has been nothing but conflict for the last few weeks. It's like watching people argue and it's, it's kind of fun, but it's also kind of deep and heavy. So we're going to get into one of the last moments. Next week, see, next week it's the parables. Oh, yay, the fun parables. But this week we're going to continue on in the conflict. So here we go. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to go back through it and kind of tease out some things that I think are really interesting. So here's the whole passage. It's in Matthew 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 38. Here's what happens. It says, then... Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, that's Jesus, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, desert places, seeking rest and doesn't find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds a house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And that final condition of the person is worse than the first. That's how it is with this wicked generation. And while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside. They want to speak to you. And Jesus replied to him, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So this is where we are. And this is, again, Jesus keeps picking fights. We are in the middle of this, this passage in Matthew 11 and 12. Now, these are uncomfortable because I like the Jesus that like heals people and like teaches amazing things and like uh, does all these amazing healings. That's the, fun, that's the awesome Jesus. And then all of a sudden you see there's tremendous conflict with these religious leaders and it's, it's really incredible. So um, this isn't super fun, but it's like really important and instructive. It reminds us of some truths about Jesus and about us. So let me just go through this passage again, and we're going to pause anytime there's something really kind of important or interesting I want to pull out. So let's start. And Matthew 12, it says, then, let's stop. <laughs> now, before we go any further, I want to talk about the then, because that then's important. Matthew is anchoring this story in what's come before it. So a quick recap, what has come before it? Here's what has happened. 
in the middle, beginning of the chapter, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and his disciples, they go and they take some grain and they eat it. And the religious leaders are like, ha ha, you broke the Sabbath. You're not, allowed to, you're not allowed to eat on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to harvest like that. You're not allowed to pick and then harvest. You're breaking the law. And Jesus is like, oh, I have no patience. And then he has a standoff with them. And then Jesus follows them into their synagogue. And he's like, you got the Sabbath all wrong, you rule followers. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna actually heal a guy with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And they're like, you can't do that. And he's like, yeah, you can. Here's why. How many of you, if you had a sheep that fell in a pit on the Sabbath, would you just let it die? And they're like, no. And he's like, exactly, you'd pull it out. How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? And they're like, ah. And he's like, ah. And then he heals the dude. He heals the dude. And his arm like comes back, right? And they're like, what? And then the Pharisees get even more mad. So they bring a demon-possessed man to Jesus. And they're like, ah, here's a demon guy. Ha ha, see what you do with him. And he's like, bam, heals him. And they're like, oh. So then they're like, what's going on? And they're like, the only way that you can do that is if you're actually like had your power from Satan. And so they are just so, their GPS is exactly wrong. They're completely off. Everything is wrong. In fact, here's how off they are. They're in the middle of the synagogue service. Jesus heals a guy with a shriveled hand. Here's, he heals a guy. His hand was completely useless, broken. He brings it back to normal. And if you and I saw that, our response would probably be something like awe or wonder or worship. Here is how they responded. In Matthew 12, this is what's recorded. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. That's their response to Jesus. Do you see how upside down they are? Do you see how uncalibrated, miscalibrated their hearts are? Like this line, they saw Jesus heal a dude and they wanted to murder him. That is bananas. That is absolutely bananas. But this is where we are. This is the setting for where we are. Jesus walks into this place and he's got this group of people that want to kill him. And this is the context that they are. I see my friend Matt over here. It's Father's Day. Matt's a good friend of mine. Imagine you walk into church, Matt, and you've got this whole section. Let's pretend this section over here, you guys hate Matt, okay? On the count of three, I want you to say, we hate Matt. One, two, three. Now say it like you mean it. One, two, three. Does that, uh, there it is. Uh, yeah, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel good. Matt walks in, and so that's what it is. It's like, and not only do they hate you, they all are plotting to kill you, and then you walk in the synagogue, and they're like, hey, Matt, how's it going? How you doing this morning? Do you see that this is the setting that Jesus is in? And they come to him, and they ask for a sign. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to make sure that you're actually from God. We're just, we're just some curious people here. We're just interested. We're just interested. Come on. And Jesus is having none of it. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none's going to be given. Now, first of all, is it wrong in the Bible to ask God for a sign? And I would submit to you it's absolutely not. There's lots of times when servants of God are like really scared and they want to believe, but they're like afraid and they ask God, hey, listen, what you're asking is really hard. Can, can, I, can you help me out with this? Like, it's like that guy who comes up to Jesus and says, I want to believe, but would you please help my unbelief, right? 
And to those people, like Abraham, remember he needed a sign, and God does the covenant walk. Or Gideon, Gideon's like the Urkel of the Old Testament. He's so afraid and so weak. He's like, I can't lead your people. And God's like, gives him a sign. Or um, uh, the, uh, Joshua with the sun standing still, right? There's, there's signs that God gives to his people. But they're almost always people who are afraid or they're, hum- they're humble, right? This is not that. These are people who want to kill Jesus, who have their mind made up to kill Jesus, and they're like, hey, can we have a sign? And Jesus is like, I'm not a circus performer. I don't perform. This is not what this is. You don't tell me what to do. This is not how this works. We're not playing this game. Jesus sees through. See, this is so fascinating to me. The same sentence, God, can I have a sign, can come out of two different people, One of them, it can be a pure expression of faith and hope, and the other, it can be a murderous intent. Does that make sense? Out of the same sentence, what's your heart, what's in you matters tremendously. Secondly, do they need a sign? I mean, really? I went through what Matthew has just recorded in the first 11 chapters. I just made a list, just for myself. This is what the signs we have so far that Jesus is not just a dude, but something different and sent by God. And the first two are starred because maybe you weren't there or maybe nobody was there or maybe they, 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 people didn't see it. But like there's, there's the star guy. This doesn't even count Mary and her virgin birth. Maybe people are like, well, there's no real record of that. We can't prove that. The star guiding the Magi, remember in the story? That's miraculous. That's pretty crazy. Then there's a dream that warned the Magi to flee. Then Jesus' baptism, a dove descends from heaven, and then a voice booms out. That's crazy. Many are healed. There's the Sermon on the Mount, which might not seem miraculous, but we're still talking about it, and it's seen as one of the greatest discourses in human history. So that's something. (laughs) Incredible teaching that has transformed and transfixed the human experience for millennia. I don't know. That's 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 a good go. Then you've got he cleanses a leper, he heals a centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law sick, she's healed. Then many are healed again. Again, many, it says that the town brought all of their, their sick and their demon-possessed, and Jesus heals them. He calms the storm, that's a big one. Very few people can do that. He heals some demon-possessed men, there's a paralyzed man on a mat, he allows him to walk, he heals him. There's a bleeding woman for 12 years, heals her. Jairus' daughter is dead, now she's not, because Jesus did something. That's cray. Again, very few people can do this. Two blind men receive sight. There's a mute demon-possessed man. He's healed. And then a man with the shriveled hand that we just talked about. That's, to my count, at least 18 different what moments in Jesus' life. If you wanted to see, is this man different? Is he sent by God? All you had to do was pay attention. And not even close attention. What is Matthew trying to say? Matthew's trying to say, these guys don't need a sign. Which goes to show you another thing. Two people can see the same set of data and some can bow and worship and have their hearts completely unearthed and say, this is truly God. And some can see it and say, nah, nah. This is insane, isn't it? It's just so utterly fascinating. And Jesus said, no, you don't get a sign. You don't get a sign. And then he backtracks and says, ah, okay, I'll give you one, the sign of Jonah. So now we need to talk about Jonah. Just for a second, 
because I would love to do like a multiple part sermon series. This is one of the weirdest, strangest, and shortest books. It's only like 1,100 words. It's four chapters. It's tiny. In fact, if you're trying to find it in your Bible and you're flipping it, you could flip through it very easily because it's very difficult to find because it's so short. And so there it is. I want to talk a little bit about Jonah, what Jesus is saying, because when Jesus references Jonah in this moment, he's going to pull, he's going to dive in and he's going to say, there's one specific thing about Jonah I want you to pay attention to that's just like what I, the sign I'm going to give you. But whenever Jesus makes a reference to something Old Testament, to a bunch of Pharisees, this is him referencing the entire thing, the entire story. Does that make sense? It's, it's actually a, a Jewish teaching because they were a society that had memorized the entirety of the Old Testament. They knew all these stories. These were a people of the book. When Jesus made one little reference, what would happen is the rest of the reference would come flooding in. It'd be like if you and I are talking and you've got this teenager and the teenager's troublesome and you don't know what to do with this teenager. And I said, well, in West Philadelphia, born and raised. Now, you'd be like, well, he's not even from Philadelphia. What are you talking about? But you see what I'm doing? I'm making a callback to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air who got in one little fight and his mom got scared, so they moved him with his auntie and uncle in Bel-Air. It's the entire story and the entire narrative pulled in by one single line. That was such a stupid example. But some of you got it. This is what Jesus is doing with Jonah. So we're gonna, we're gonna delve in. So first we need to, to show a little bit in broad strokes what's going on with Jonah. In the beginning of Jonah, the book of Jonah, this is what happens. And the re- this is so important I think because it's going to show us a little bit about the heart of God and then something about Jesus that's really important. So uh, in the beginning of Jonah, the book of Jonah opens up with this. The Lord, Yahweh, the creator God, gives a message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, which is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Announce my judgment against it because I've seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. So that works out well. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship living for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Again, running away from God rarely works. Because he's faster, has more money, and is omnipresent. So let me show you the Assyrian Empire. Here's the Assyrian Empire right about the time Um, of Jonah. It's a massive empire. At this point, it's the largest, most uh, important empire on the planet. And they were known for being, the way they got their power, the way they conquered was through relentless, bloodthirsty war. They were not just warriors, they were sadistic warriors. They conquered through terror and through conquest. So there's all sorts of uh, inscriptions in the ancient world about their kings. This is an inscription. This is going to get a little graphic for a second. I apologize. But this is just the history of what it was. This is an inscription in uh, an ancient uh, Assyrian empire that they found in Iraq uh, of what the kings did. They, they led their captives away with fish hooks in their, in their cheeks to show them like we've caught you. They put out people's eyes. They speared people. This is actually uh, an inscription from an Assyrian war bulletin, which was found on a tablet they dated it a couple years before this would have happened to Jonah. This is King Ashurnazer Paul I saying how he conquered people. He said, I slew 260 fighting men, 
I cut off their hands to make pyramids, their heads to make pyramids thereof. I slew one of every two. I built a wall before the great gates of the city. I flayed the chief men of the rebels and I covered the wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall and some of them were crucified on stakes along the wall. This is how they conquered. And what happened in Israel's history is this empire comes and it crushes the 10 northern tribes and actually completely decimates them and those people are literally led away with fish hooks into captivity. This, is, this happened to Jonah's nation, people that were in his Jewish people. And so he does not want to go to them. I don't really have any uh, ways of, of like describing exactly how bad this was, but basically um, my daughter is in, uh, she, was in t- uh, she just finished up her 10th grade year and, and for school she read Night, which is a, a memoir by Leigh Wiesel about the Holocaust. And as she was going through that very traumatic book, I started thinking it's kind of similar to asking a Jewish person to go to Berlin in 1942 and preach to the Nazis. I mean, do you see? It's like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I want judgment to come. They're evil, they're wicked. And so this is where uh, the capital of Nineveh is today. It's actually uh, Nineveh, uh, the capital of Assyria is Nineveh. It's near the modern town of Mosul in Iraq. And I want to show you where Tarshish is. Tarshish, this is the map of the Mediterranean. This is where Jonah gets on. This is a, a map of where Joppa is and where he's going. So this is, let me show you this. That's Tarshish. It's in Malta. You really can't get further away. You really can't. And so what happens is he's running away, and it says, um, so he's running away. Again, hard to run from God, and this is what the story says. The Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. So he's trying to get Jonah's attention. You're going the wrong way. And then the sailors are like, we're gonna die. And they're like, and so they're trying to figure out what's wrong. And Jonah's like, well, it's me. And they're like, what, what do you mean? And he's like, me, it's me. I'm the problem, it's me. And they're like, what, what's going on, why? And he's like, here's why. He's like, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of the heaven who made the sea and the land. And they were terrified of this, it says, the sailors, for they had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Why did you do this, they groaned. And since the storm was getting all the worse, they said, what should we do to stop the storm? And then Jonah says, well, it's my fault, so you gotta throw me into the sea. And they don't wanna do it. So they pray and they try to row to the shore because they know throwing him overboard is a death sentence. He's in a storm in the middle of the Mediterranean with no ship. That's a death sentence. And they're like, we don't wanna be murderers. So they pray and they pray to God and they try to row to the shore. They want to, and they can't. And so eventually they're like, we're gonna die. The ship's gonna break apart. So they throw him overboard. And there he is in the middle of the Mediterranean in the middle of the storm with no boat. This is a death sentence. He's dead. He's not as good as dead. He's dead. He's sinking into the depths. He's dead. He's dead. And God, you know, rescues him with a giant sea creature, a fish, a whale, swallows him miraculously, and then takes him over to the shore where he should be. This is astonishing. He is rescued from death. And so what, the, here's why this is important. Because when he comes to Nineveh and he preaches... He preaches as a man who's been the subject of a miraculous work of God. This message is from God, how do we know? Because I so didn't want to deliver it, I got on a boat, sailed the opposite way, was thrown into the ocean, good as dead, rescued by God to deliver this message. So the idea here is that Jonah's rescue from death 
authenticated his message to the Ninevites. Of course he's from God. He's as good as dead. He should have been dead. And Jesus is saying, like, look, 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 look. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is saying, just as Jonah was as good as dead, and his rescue showed that God's hand was on him and he was God's messenger, Jonah was as good as dead, I'm gonna be dead dead. I'm gonna spend three days in the grave. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be in the ground. And then when I come back out, it's gonna be proof that God is with me and I'm God's messenger. He's pointing to the resurrection, though this is very cryptic. Nobody would have understood it yet. But we know, because we kind of know where the story's going. Jesus is hinting. I'm authenticated. I'm authenticated because of the miraculous hand of God in my life. Jesus' resurrection from death, he wasn't just as good as dead. He was actually dead. That's going to authenticate him as a prophet. It's going to authenticate him as divine. It's going to authenticate his message. But here's the thing. It wasn't just, now that's the major point. We're supposed to be like, whoa. And later on, we're gonna talk about the resurrection a lot. Because as, as, as we steam toward the cross and the resurrection, this is gonna be the centerpiece for Christi- early Christians and for the church. The idea that Jesus not only died for humanity, but then was resurrected is bananas. Like this has never happened in the history of the world. In the ancient world, I don't know if you know this, in the ancient world, if you were dead, you tended to stay dead. And somebody not doing that was mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Something is fundamentally different about this person. And Jesus is saying this. But it's more than that. There's, there's a, another edge to this. And I think it's exceptionally beautiful. And I want to talk about it for just a second. Jesus is actually, by calling them a wicked, do you see this term? He calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. And then he says, no sign's going to be given. A wicked and adulterous. What Jesus is doing with that word adulterous is he's hearkening back to all the times the prophets in the Old Testament called Israel adulterous. Adulterous, not idolatrous, not idols, but adultery. The idea is that you're cheating on God who is your spouse. This is the kind of violation that you're doing. The fact that you're not walking with him, the fact that you don't care about him. The prophets, Isaiah did this. Jeremiah did this, Daniel did this. There's a whole book of the Bible called Hosea where a prophet Hosea does this. He's actually called to marry an adulterous woman. Um, And it's just an astonishing story. It's like like God is working out and showing a a picture to Israel about what they're doing. So when Jesus says that, and then when he hearkens the name of Jonah, what he's doing is he's calling back this long lineage of, of, of the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus is saying, I'm actually like one of those Old Testament prophets. Jesus is identifying with and playing the role of an Old Testament prophet. And here's what Old Testament prophets did. They, in, in essence, what they did is to quote a modern day poet, prophets were there to say, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. What they're saying is you got to examine the way that you're living so that you can examine the way that you're living before God so that you might change. Because if you don't, you will be destroyed. I was trying to figure out a good illustration for this. I, I, don't, I only go to two places pretty much for illustrations, sports and literature. Uh, and so I was an English teacher for years. I'm going to give you a literary example 
and half of you will hate it, and you're just going to have to bear with me. Um, when I taught AP English for years at Gunderson High School locally, one of the books that we would read um, toward the end of the year is one of the, I think it's one of the greatest works of literature in the world. It's called Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Um, and I'm talking about the book, not the musical. This is the book. There's a moment in that story, and I think this has to do with what it means to be a prophet, and what Jesus is trying to do. In that book, the main character, whose name is, anybody know? Jean Valjean, good, literate people. Jean Valjean is in prison for stealing a loaf of bread to give to his sister and her kids. They're starving, it's France, there's a revolution, there's war on the horizon, they don't have food. He steals the loaf of bread, he's put in jail for years and years and years and years, and, he, and it hardens and embitters him. He says, oh, this is the way the world is. I see. God's dead. I'm dead. People are, hum people are terrible. God, fend for yourself. And so he gets out, and there's nowhere for him to go. And he's wandering the streets of Paris. It's winter. It's not, he doesn't have anywhere, anywhere to go. And he's, no one will turn. He, because he's a convict, no one will turn a kind eye to him. And finally, he knocks on this house, and it's actually a pastor, a bishop's house, Bishop Bienvenue. And bi the bishop lets him in, and not just lets him in, but like gives him, he says, you're welcome in my home. And gives him a warm meal and a warm bed and warms him up and says, you're welcome to stay here. My house is your house. You've had a hard life. Come in. He welcomes him with hospitality. There's a problem. Jean Valjean has spent so many years in prison, he's hardened. And so there's this moment where he's like, he sees that there's all the silverware. And he, and he thinks to himself, look. In the middle of the night when everyone's asleep, I'm just gonna steal all the silverware, put it in a sack. I'll jump this wall like a tiger, get out of here. This will help me start my life. I'm, this is what I'm gonna do. So in the middle of the night, he gets up, he steals all the silverware, and then the silver and the silverware, and then he, he gets out of there. The next morning, they wake up, and the people in the house and, and the, the, the women that work in, in the church in that area and the bishop's servants are like, oh my gosh, the silver's gone. That guy stole it, he stole it. And the bishop's really sad, he's really disappointed. And there's a knock on the door. And you know the story. The, the police have picked up Jean Valjean and they know this is the Bishop Silver because it's got his initials inscribed on it. And, and so they bring him back and they say, okay, so this guy has stolen from you, obviously. Do you want us to kill him or just throw him in jail? What do you want us to do? Um, so what do you want us to do? And in that moment, Jean Valjean, he's caught. He's going back to jail for the rest of his life if he's not killed, right? And the Bishop looks at him and says something exceptional. He says, Jean Valjean, you forgot the silver candlesticks. You ran off so fast, I forgot to give them to you. Ladies, bring them. Here you go. Thank you, officers. Thank you for finding them. It's a big misunderstanding. But now at least I get to give them the candlesticks. Jean Valjean, come inside, you silly goose. The police are like, what? And so they leave. And Jean Valjean in that moment knows that he has a tremendous choice to make. Now, you don't get this in the movie, you don't get this in the play, you don't get this in the musical, but this is how Hugo writes it, and I think that this is a singularly beautiful moment where Jean Valjean has a choice because of the kindness of a man. He's got a choice. This is how Hugo, in his brilliant prose, describes it, and I think this is what Old Testament prophets were doing. When Jean Valjean left the bishop's house, as we saw, his thoughts were unlike any he had ever known before. He could understand nothing of what was going on inside him. He stubbornly resisted the angelic deeds and the gentle words of the old man. 
You have promised me to become an honest man. I am purchasing your soul. I withdraw it from the spirit of perdition. I give it to God. That's what the bishop said. He said to Jean Valjean, I have bought your soul for good. This kept coming back to him. In opposition to this celestial tenderness, he summoned up pride, the fortress of evil in man. He dimly felt that this priest's pardon was the hardest assault, the most formidable attack he had ever sustained, that his hardness of heart would be complete if he resisted this kindness. But if he yielded, he would have to renounce the hatred which the acts of other men had for so many years filled his soul. You see, in this moment, there is something being done or said to this man where he realizes, if I go this road, my heart will be hardened forever. If I betray this bishop now, after that act of kindness, it was bad enough I did it before, but now after this double act of mercy, if I betray him now, I will have hardened my heart to the point where there is no return. I will become and solidify the fact that I am a monster or I can respond to it, but in doing so, I must change fundamentally. This act is so good, I must change fundamentally. And this is what prophets are doing. Prophets call people back to a God who has been better than they could have ever imagined. A God that saw them in slavery and did not leave them there, but came down to earth a God who saw their hard labor at the hands of the Egyptians and rescued them with signs and wonders. And when their backs were up against the wall in the Red Sea and the Egyptian armies were coming, God provided a way. And when they wandered in the desert without food or water, God provided a way. And he lived among them in a tabernacle and said, I will be your God and I will be your people. And even on Sinai, when God made a compact and a covenant, a marriage covenant with this people and they're down the base of the mountain worshiping golden calves God still says though you are unfaithful I will be faithful this is what the prophets called the people back to it's like you encounter Jean Valjean and say how could you turn your back on the bishop's good offer how can you be the kind of man who twice turns his back on that kind of kindness turn turn Turn, lest you condemn yourself, lest you harden your heart, lest you go down a road of which there is no return. The prophets call people back, and the prophets remind us of God's goodness and kindness. Yes, they have words of condemnation, strong words, but it's always couched in, how could you possibly turn from this God who has done all this? How? How? And Jesus continues. He says, look, Pharisees, the people of Nineveh are better off than you right now because they heard and they repented. They're better off than you. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, do you hear what Jesus is doing? He's saying they're better off because they have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive. They're better off. And then he says, the queen of Sheba, the queen of Ethiopia, a Gentile, not a Jewish person, she heard rumors of the wisdom of God and she came for miles to sit in here. This is a story in 1 Kings. And she sat with Solomon. Her heart was drawn. She's better off than you are right now. 
Because you don't have any wisdom. You don't have any heart to see, any heart to hear. This is what Jesus is doing. It's not just his resurrection. He's playing also the role of that Jonah prophet. And like the prophet Jonah, it's not just a message. Jonah's life was the message. And Jesus' life is the message. And to reject Jonah is to reject God's incredible offer of goodness. Turn and repent. And you and I can walk together. And this is what happened in Nineveh. Jesus is calling the Pharisees and saying, look, you can harden your heart here. This is your chance. Turn. In fact, he says this phrase. He says, something greater is happening. Actually, before that, there's this moment where his brothers and sisters come. And I, I don't, we don't really know what they're, I, I have this, there's some details in the other gospels. I think what they're doing is Mary and, her, and the brothers are coming to Jesus to get his attention to say, dude, do you have any idea what you're saying and how angry people are? Like, Jesus, they're gonna kill you. You need to knock this off. We don't know who you are, like, Jesus, like, what, what? I don't know why you're talking this way, but you're gonna get yourself killed. And Jesus, look what he says. Who's my mother? Who's my brother? And then he points to his disciples. This bunch of tax collectors and fishermen this group of nobodies, teenage boys and a 20-year-old named Peter. Teenagers, teenage boys. (laughs) And he says, they're my family because they do the will of my father. They have eyes to see, ears to hear. They have a heart to receive. That's my family. Anyone who's like that, that's my family. My family, Jesus says, my family, my kin. Wouldn't you know it, some of you know this. When Jesus brings you into his family, yeah, you and I don't have any genetic relation probably, but we got the same blood in our veins, don't we? The one who shed his blood for us, we're brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles. That's what we are. He says, that's my family. And he invites people into that kind of relationship, family. The king, look, people understood God as king and God as God. But God as family, God as father, this is mind-blowing. And Jesus is saying, that's what this is. That's what this is. This is the invitation. Do you see how good this is? And then Jesus says, he, find, he ends it with this. Nah, Pharisees, check yourself because something greater is here. I love this. Jesus could have said someone greater is here, right? He could have said that, right? Someone greater than Jonah, someone greater. Yeah, he could have said that. And that would be 100% true. But what Jesus is also referring to is not just him, but what he's bringing to the table, all the life change, all the miracles that we just put up on the screen. There's a thing that God's doing. Jesus is at the center of it. He's the one, but there's a thing. The kingdom is infiltrating. God's presence is here. God is doing something incredible, something greater than Jonah. And Jesus is saying, let me tell you what this thing greater is. Instead of a coward who runs away from the assignment of God, God himself, his son will come and take it directly to earth. Instead of a messenger who's filled with hate and enmity, who
who does not want people to come. The Messiah will come healing and bringing love. Instead of one wicked, evil city, the most wicked, evil city perhaps in the world at that time, instead of one city changing and turning and repenting, this message is for all the world. And not just one city change, the entire world will be affected by this thing that Jesus is bringing into the world. This is what Jesus is doing. And he's saying, if you don't see this, if you harden your heart against this, where are you going to go? What better thing in the universe could there possibly be than this right here? This thing that God is doing, that Jesus is at the center of. He's calling us into that as well. The book of Jonah, as I was rereading it this week, there's just a couple of thoughts that I had. The book of Jonah messes with me because it asked me the question, am I okay with God loving my enemies? The people I don't like. Is my God's love big enough for all the world? The people I don't understand or the people I don't like? The people who are hard to love, the people I have bitterness against? Can I have God's heart? Another question that this text reminds me of, that Jesus is prophetic. Is there any place in my life where I'm resisting God? Where I have a hardness? No, God, not, not, no. I don't wanna be anything like these Pharisees. I don't want God to search me that I might not. I don't wanna have anything to do with the attitudes. And if there's any part of that, any root, any weed in my own heart like that, I want that out. I want that dug out. But then lastly, the sign of Jonah is the resurrecting power of the Christ, Jesus, who was raised from the dead. Is the resurrection truth and power of Jesus? Is that apparent in my life? Because here's what's incredible. That sign of Jonah is walking in this room. There are people in this room who say, I was dead. I was as good as dead. You have no idea. You think Jonah was a goner. I was in the Mediterranean in the storm of my own making, and I was drowning, and God rescued me. And he changed me. He resurrected me. He brought me back to life. And I'm different. And he's my God. We can be walking signs of the resurrecting power of of God of the resurrection of Jesus, of the power of God. That's the sign of Jonah. It's still, it's still out here because the sign of Jonah is Jesus resurrected, doing his work even now. Something greater than Jonah is here, even in the Silicon Valley, in this room, in this valley, right here, in my life, in your family. And that can happen. That is happening. And for those of you who might be on the fence about this, maybe on the fence about Jesus or If you're honest, you've been playing a little too fast and loose with God. The same offer is there to the Ninevites. It's there to us. It's there to everybody. Just just come back. Come back. Don't disdain this gift. There's nothing better in this world. Be changed by it. Stare at it. Have it transform you. Stare at the goodness of God in your own life and come back home the same offer, the same thing. That's what Jesus is doing in this. He's calling people home and reminding people just how good God is. Let's pray.
God, I pray for folks who, like Jonah, are maybe a little stubborn in their heart right now. And they think that maybe they can run away. Or they've been trying to run away for a while. Or maybe they're running because they're hurt. God, we can't outrun you. We just can't. So maybe it'd be better just to stop trying and open ourselves up to your goodness. You're not coming after us to get us, but you're coming after us to get us, to put us in your family. Because that's what good dads do when their kids are lost. They go out looking for them. They won't stop till they're home. I pray that we would see that heart of you, Father, and be changed by it. And I pray that all of us would see that something greater than Jonah is here. Your work, Jesus, back then and now and continuing, that's the center. And that sign changes everything. It's a reminder that you're with us. It's a reminder of who God is. And it demands that we stare at it and be changed by it. Would you help us see it with clarity and be changed by it? It's in your name we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Man, will you stand with me as we worship?